and we are live. Welcome to episode 3282 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, today we're going to do something different for a Monday. Mondays a lot of times are like shows with some current events blended in, some doom and gloom, all of that stuff. Today we're not going to do any of that. Today we're going to be talking about a plant called sorghum. And as you might have noticed, the uh, the title of today's episode is Sorghum, the Perfect Prepper Grain. Um, and some of you might have gotten the announcement somewhere on social media or Telegram or something like that. Or if you're listening to the audio, you just saw it come through in your podcast feed, you know, depending on whatever you're using, and thought, Jack's going to talk about sorghum? Sorghum sugar. Sorghum's a grain. Jack's a ketovore. Look at, look at Jack. Look what he looks like now compared to five years ago. You're not going to start eating bread again. I'm not, but some of you do. And I, I talked about this, kind of teased this episode a week ago. There's a few things involved with this topic. And one is I have my personal dietary choices. I do not say if you don't do everything Jack does, don't listen to the survival podcast. Just go away and die. I actually care about my entire audience, including people that have different dietary choices than me. So uh, there is a place for grain uh, for discussion of, especially when it comes to growing it. Next up is I value grain. My birds eat grain, you know, uh, so it's it's a feed source for me more than anything else. And then there's a lot of other benefits that as a homesteader, a prepper, a small scale farmer, uh, anything in between that you can gain from the use of sorghum. And we're going to talk about a bunch of them today. And so there's a there's a tremendous incentive for me to grow this crop. And I have, in fact, grown it here on my property in the past and I'm doing so again this year. Basically coming back around to, hey, I grew this before and it worked really good. And I wasn't even growing it in prepared beds or anything. When I put my food forest in and there was all tiny little trees and all, and it wasn't actually a forest yet, I grew a ton of this stuff in my swale berms. I just went around with a drill with a little mini auger and just dropped seeds in. And it grew huge and wonderful and the birds ate it and it was it was cool. And I'm like, wait a minute, if you actually gave it some care and some love, it would do even better. And that's kind of a testament to this plant. This is a this is a survivor survivalist plant because it's a survivalist. And we'll talk about that as well today. So I have a ton of stuff for you. And I think by the time I'm done with this, you realize this is a plant that even if you don't grow it, you should know about it. You should know about it. Anyway, before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsor of the day or sponsors of the day. Sponsor today number one today is Paul Wheaton. With his Kickstarter, his low-tech labs Kickstarter, guys, I want you to realize how much Paul has added to this thing in the way of stretch goals. It's kind of crazy, really, but Paul's just big on adding value. So the stretch goals I'm going to give you are people that have sponsored the Kickstarter for at least 100 bucks, and you have until the Kickstarter is over, I think, like another week and a half to, to get on board with it. If you're 100 bucks or higher in your sponsorship, you get all the stuff that's included at that level of support, the movie, the downloads, all of it. But these are all stretch goals, meaning once they met their goal, they start setting these goals. And if we get here, we'll add this. And if we get here, we'll add that. Here's what's been added or soon will be, because I'm going to guarantee the last two on this list, they're going to hit these goals. The, 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 the second to the last one that may have already hit since I put the show notes together today. Um, but the Greenwood Apprenticeship course for Mortis and 10 Magazine that's been added at 40,000. Soil First Gardening Extended Edition by Anna Hess, that's been adding. 
uh, added. The new Science of Sustainable Beekeeping documentary, that's been added. Kelly Hart Sustainable Agriculture movie, that's been added. Tiny House magazine, the entire 2022 set, that's been added. Um, Homegrown Humus and Bug-Free Gardening by Anna Hess, that's been added. Golden Goat Herbals, Herbalism and Fermented Sodas video course and ebook. That's been added. Regenerative soils of, uh, of permanence. Uh, regenerative scales of permanence by Alan Booker. I love Alan Booker. The course that I brought you guys a while ago on plant genetics from him was just a stupid value at 10 bucks. You get a, a much more intensive, I think, uh, presentation here. Uh, and then the two that have not been met yet, but I know this one will be by today. I, I'll put money on it. Home mushroom cultivation class recording from Fungi Ally. And then the $85,000 goal, which is no way he's not going to hit that at this point. DIY chicken coops by John White. You get all that. That's worth a hundred bucks, but this is all in addition to everything a hundred bucks gets you. So definitely check this out. There's a link to it in the video notes below or in uh, today's uh, episode notes. Next up today is JM Bullion. Um, I know guys that I talk an awful lot about Bitcoin. I know I do, and there's a reason, and it is something I think belongs in uh, your wealth portfolio. I really do. However, I have never for one minute stopped my standard recommendation of precious metals for wealth assurance. And it has been since the beginning of the show in 2008, 5 to 10% of your wealth in precious metals. I personally do 5 People pushed back on me at five and said, you know, I want to do more. And I'm like, okay, I'm okay with the upper limit of 10. I do five, but I'm okay with that range, five to 10%. The place to get your metals though is JM Bullion. Why? Free shipping for all MS, free shipping for everybody. Discount for MSB members. Sponsored this show for 12 years now, 12 years in the world of podcasting. I don't know why you would go anywhere else. They have all kinds of cool stuff. Check them out today at jambullion.com. Let me do a little silence action there on that phone. Forgot to do that this morning. Anyway, got some other stuff going on I want you guys to know about. Uh, number one is a soft launch today of the discount that I've been talking about for a while. Uh, Mile High Distilling. I have been working on this for longer than I can remember, honestly. Uh it had to be five years ago that a friend of mine and I went in and jointly purchased a really nice still setup for Mile High Distilling. And uh, right away, I was like, this is freaking artwork. The, 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 just the welding alone was artwork. And I started talking to the owner all the way back then, and I just could never close the deal and get them as a discounter. They today are officially in the MSB. Tomorrow, the, all the announcement and all will go out. But soft launch today, Mile High Distilling. Now a member of the MSB, 10% off everything at Mile High. Uh, so that's pretty cool. One more quick announcement before um, we uh, go into Sorghum. I also added two members of the Expert Council. This announcement did go out last week, but not everybody listens to every episode, so I wanted to uh, put it on today. Uh, Josh, the renegade butcher, who's just an awesome guy, all kinds of stuff going on, custom butchers, been on the show, et cetera. Um, Lightning for Liberty is the Telegram group he started. So he's a Bitcoiner. He's a butcher. He's a cook. Awesome dude. Here to answer your questions on all types of stuff like that. And uh, we added him. And then we also added CJ Kilmer, who is, of course, the host of the Dangerous History podcast. 
So just wanted to kind of point out again that we brought those two folks on board as expert council members and definitely get me some questions for CJ and Josh so we can get them out of the gate strong, helping you guys out on Friday expert shows. All right. So let's dig into this now. Um, again, sorghum, I, I, I know there's people out there that when you hear sorghum, kind of the first thing that you think of is sorghum syrup. And so when you hear me talking about sorghum, you might be like, why is Jack even bothering to talk about sorghum? Because it's really not something that he would tout as a feed source for people. Well, again, back to where I started, I really want people to understand that just because I advocate something and say this is what I think is best doesn't mean that I disrespect people that choose something else. And then the other thing is there's all these other reasons to have it. I was mentioning like some of the things that sorghum is of value to me. Well, as a prepper, what I can say of grains is grains are great survival food. They're great survival food. They're not great. In my opinion, the human diet is better without grain in it. Okay. Even a gluten free grain like sorghum, which does make it more palatable for a lot of people. Um, but when it comes down to it, grain will keep you alive. And sorghum is one of the most nutritious grains in the world as far as its complete nutritional profile. It, it's actually pretty amazing in that way. And it stores for dang near ever with no real effort. So if you're a prepper and you want to make sure you don't starve to death, then grain is a good way to go. And it can be five gallon buckets with, you know, hand warmers in them, which are giant O2 absorbers and put back in the closet and just it's there if you need it. But it also would be good to know how to grow it. And I've been asked over the years many times, what grain should a prepper grow? And my response has usually been probably none. It's cheap. Go buy it. But the reason isn't because it's hard to grow. It's because it's hard to process. So sorghum's actually really easy to process. Sorghum's an ancient grain, and it's been grown in Africa, the Middle East, and in India for thousands of years. It's for thousands of years. The earliest recorded growing of sorghum, and it's probably older than this, it's just where you would find records, was from the Egypt, from the area around Egypt. And it was grown mainly there as a source of grain for making bread and beer. So now, you know, we can, if you can make beer, that just means you, you made alcohol. Well, alcohol can be distilled, distilled with a mile high distilling still. That's why I made sure they were uh, on board for today. I wanted to kind of put that little tie in for you. Um, but because it's such an ancient grain, because it's been grown for so long by humans, it's been selected specifically, and the wild forms are already pretty close, for ease of growing, uh, for hardiness, and for ease of processing. If you find something that processes easier, that's what you're going to select. And by selecting it just because you want it that way, you're going to reinforce it over time. So as an ancient grain, I think that we need to think about some other things with that. Ancient grains has become like a marketing term and all. Let's think about it in the context of a prepper or a survivalist or a homesteader or a permaculturist. When we say ancient grains, a lot of times we're talking about, well, this was you know, grown with you know, conventional, the, the conventional agriculture of the day 5,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, somewhere in that range. Sorghum's a bit different. It's within, especially in Africa, it's kind of the people's grain. So you have all your you know, commercial, small to large scale 
grain operations in Africa. By the way, the United States actually grows the most sorghum in the world right now as far as an individual nation. But in Africa, if you are a small subsistence farmer, no matter what you're growing, you're also growing sorghum. And it is the kind of thing that can be processed simply by waiting till the right time to cut the heads off it, letting them dry, and they lay it down on a big tarp or something, and they just beat it. And then they just winnow it in the wind, and it's pretty much ready to go at that point. If you can, if you compare that to what it takes to process something like rye or triticale or wheat, there's a lot more labor involved in processing those things. And we'll talk more about how to process sorghum uh, a little bit later. But because it is so old, it's easy to hand process because that's what people have been doing with it since they started using it. It's probably one of the reasons it was initially selected as a human food. It, it didn't kill you. It tasted pretty good. It was pretty easy to get at. Um, it has more nutrient than just about any other grain humans grow. When I say that, I don't mean it has like more protein than wheat. Wheat actually has more protein than sorghum. What I mean is the total nutrient profile when you're looking at micronutrients and not just the macros. In fact, during the, the years you know, leading up to and then during the Great Depression, doctors in the United States would often tell uh, parents if they had children with nutritional deficiencies to give them a teaspoon of sorghum syrup or molasses in a glass of warm water every day as a nutrient supplement. And it worked. It actually worked. That's why they kept recommending it. Now, you might recommend something, but when it stops working, maybe you stop recommending it. No, it, it worked. Uh, it's very drought tolerant. Given that it is from North Africa and it's from South and, and, and honestly, East of there as well. Uh, but given the, the climate that it's native to, you already know that it's going to be drought tolerant because you're in a dry climate. So it is much more drought tolerant than something like uh, maize or corn, right? It's much more drought tolerant than wheat or barley. It's also very disease resistant and it can handle a broad, uh, broad temperature range and temperature swings. It, it can literally at times when it gets really dry and really hot, kind of just, hang out and go kind of dormant. And when your later season rains come, kind of come back around. I've seen that happen right here. I've seen it stressed to the point where it actually began to excrete some of the sap on the leaves. And at the time I was keeping bees and the bees would come and feed on the sorghum sap off the plants. And then, you know, we get a rain and boom, it just would finish, finish its growth spurt for the year. So that, that's something that if you're a prepper, and you're thinking, I want an easy-to-grow, easy-to-process crop that I can feed to myself and my family that will be drought-tolerant. Yeah, that's something maybe we should look at. But it also grows well in marginal soils that don't grow other human food crops well. This is probably the biggest thing that makes it something that we need to be looking at as preppers. Because if we're if we're in a situation where shit starts going south, hopefully we've done a lot as far as building fertility by the time that happens. And our gardens are blowing and going. And all we got to do is, if we want more food, plant more food, right? When you start getting into something like a grain crop, it's not that easy. You're talking about larger plantings, larger blocks of plantings. So you're talking about maybe, you know, taking this area here that's a quarter acre and I know I'm against plowing, but first year, plowing it, 
and planting it and hoping to get something or taking marginal edges like I did with my berms and dropping a seed in every foot, watering it in and hoping for the best. So, again, when I say marginal soils, I want you to think about, for those of you that know my property, I want you to think about how harsh this environment is. When we moved in here 10 years ago, we put in a three-quarter acre food forest over in my, my eastern uh, part of my property. We, we cut in swales, which are ditches on contour, for those not familiar with them, using a mini excavator. They're about six foot long, wide, uh, several hundred feet long, following the land contours. And they have a berm of the soil that was pulled up and out of them. Now, since we can only dig about 10 inches deep, the berms are not that big, but the berms are full of limestone conglomerate rock, and it's a very poor quality soil. And I know that I've done a lot to improve it over 10 years, but what I'm telling you guys is we dug it in in the fall, and that spring, with very little improvement having been done yet, I planted sorghum in between all the trees and bushes and shrubs, and it did Fantastic. The two varieties that I planted were called white African, also sometimes called white African giant. Very, very, I mean, 10 foot tall plants, huge heads of, of grain on the top of them. And the other one was Mennonite. And that's why this year I'm giving them a little bit better of an environment and I'm trialing both of them. Might they cross pollinate? Sure. We'll see what happens. Um, I'm going to actually be planting them a, a couple weeks apart. So that may actually stagger their pollination, and so we'll see how that works out too. But if we end up with a, a hybrid and it, it, it turns out to do something good, well, fine. Um, you know, it's just just something we're going to try and just look at both of these and see which one does more for my homestead and select one going forward and go to a single one in the future. Um, it has also something that we – so anyway, it just – I want to point out that my shitty soil – no fertilizer added, no compost added, just dig and mulch and plant. And the plants did fantastic, even without irrigation here. Now, they were in swales, which makes irrigation less necessary, but uh, no irrigation and did really well. That uh, also, one more thing I want to say about this before we get into, like, some of the things that preppers can use this plant for is that, there's a lot of talk about perennial grains and I think perennial grains is something that it's a, it's a good idea. And if we're going to keep living on grains or we're going to feed livestock grains, getting to a perennial grain based system just far exceeds anything that we can do for ourselves with annual grain. Because if we're doing perennial, then we don't have to have no till policies. If you have a perennial, you don't till it. You have a you have a zero input cost from your farmer for seed annually. You you get rid of the seed patent bullshit because it's a perennial. It comes back even if you have to pay some license fee or something as a farmer for access to it initially. Now it's perennial, so it would be better for everybody. And the one that everybody seems to really be interested in is perennial wheat. It's not looking good. For all the talk and all the hype, it's not looking good. Sorghum, I will tell you this. If you make a frost-tolerant sorghum, I think you're pretty much already there. Because as we'll talk about in a bit, I have grown sorghum to a grain head. 
went, yeah, that grain's good. Cut the grain head off, cut the stalk out, watch the stalks re-sprout compass and make more heads on the same plant. So if that plant didn't die in winter, if that root system stayed alive, you're there. And I think there's actually a lot of sorghum already that really is perennialized if it was in the right climate. We actually have a couple varieties. I'm not going to get into them today, but um, it has it, it has to um, go further. But I think that that's one of the greatest things we could do for humanity and agriculture as a whole is perennialized grains. Uh, okay, a quick question here. Please uh, uh, put all questions, at least the first couple words, in all caps. Uh, Kumi is asking, days to maturity interweb seems dim 115 to 144 days. It's actually broader than that. There's, there's sorghums that mature in 80 and 90 days, and there's sorghums that are further on the outside past 140 days. So it's, it's a variable thing. It depends on climate, temperature, growing conditions, what have you. But I have, I've seen Mennonite go about 100 days and produce. The thing is, like I talked about cutting it, it comes back. It comes back faster than it grows the first time because it's already got the root system established. I think it, if I remember right, the place I did that heavily was in my place in Arkansas when I was growing Mennonite sorghum up there. And it came back about 60 days. It already had seed heads on it a second time. So if you have, we're going to talk, I got a bullet point for that. If you have a long growing season, this is a two harvest single plant crop, even if it's not perennialized. There are three primary types of sorghum. And I want to point out, this is one of these things I put together for you based on my experience, but also just on research. And I've grown quite a bit of sorghum, several different seasons of it. I've fed it to my animals. I've used it. I've eaten things made with sorghum. Um, but I'm not an expert. So I'm going to say some stuff when I talk about the three types. They're going to demonstrate that I'm not an expert and don't expect me to be. And I might say something wrong if you are like an old-time farmer been growing sorghum forever you might be like he don't know what he's talking about let me know in the comments and we'll uh or the uh, live feed and we will uh get the information out to the people so the three primary types are grain sweet and forage and i'm going to talk the least about forage and forage sorghums are generally uh sorghum sudan grass mixes and they get huge amounts of biomass and they're grown as forage and silage and other purposes, they're also like a lot of permacultures now are using these Sudan grasses and they're just doing it for sheer biomass. And if you think about what a pickup truck of wood chips costs, it makes a lot of sense because you can grow these huge canes, cut that to the ground, put them through a chipper shredder and grow a second crop. So do a double crop in a single season if you have a long growing season. And the amount of biomass that creates is amazing. They're also used as things for animals to graze and to make silage for animals. I want to say something here. I'm going to talk a little bit at the very end more about it and go into depth on some things. There is a concern with sorghum and cyanide. And it's in two places. And again, I'll, I'll speak to both of them at the very end of this video. But one is in sprouting sorghum seeds. And I'll talk about that and why I think it's real and not real at the same time, but I don't know. But when it comes to silage, when sorghum is hit with frost and it begins to wilt, sorghum is one of the plants that has little traces amounts of cyanide in it. It can drastically increase, and it is dangerous to feed your animals at that point. So if you're going to grow it for silage or for 
browse or whatever, grazing, then you need to know more about that. And I would say I'm not a big fan of government, but like your NRCS, your ag extension, whatever, would be a good place to get information about it for you. But yes, compost material is what Kumi's saying. That's the thing that, that permacultures are going nuts about with sedan grass uh, crosses. And it's Diego Footer has some videos on his channel that is there. It's phenomenal the amount of biomass because this stuff is just basically giant grass. That's what you really need to realize. It's a giant annual grass, and so you can plant it very densely because it grows straight. Its mass is vertical, not horizontal. So when you got something to grow 12 feet. And you have an area you want to improve. You plant it with that and put it back to the ground a few times. You, you can really, you know, get a handle on it. Now, I do want to say one thing I do know about, this, the, like, the sedan grass crosses and stuff. If you let it go to seed, it can become persistent in your on your landscape, right? So if you are only doing it for improvement and you don't want it just showing up where it wants to, you need to always cut it before it goes to full-on seed. But that's the forage, and I'm not going to talk about forage anymore other than noting some things that it can, you know, you can use silage and stuff out of it. The other two are grain and sweet, and this is where my lack of being an expert may show. I don't know. I'm guessing here because I'm not finding a good explanation. Sweet sorghums are sorghums that are grown for the cane, and you squeeze them and you get juice out of them, and you can then reduce that juice down with heat into a syrup or if you reduce it further into what they call a sorghum molasses. And so if you are growing a sweet sorghum intentionally, that's the reason you're growing it. A grain sorghum is grown for the grain on the head. It seems pretty simple, but here's the thing. I have yet to find a sweet sorghum that doesn't make very acceptable grain. Now, some people that really do it just for the sugar will harvest it early when the grain's not ready, it's because they get a larger sugar yield, okay? That doesn't change the nature of what the plant is, though, because every sweet sorghum, that I like Mennonite is an example of one that's actually marketed as it's dual. It's grain, and it's sweet. My best guess at this, when they say grain sorghum, they're talking about sorghums that have been jacked around with by humans, specifically to have traits that make them ideal for the production of grains. That is not a GMO. There are no GMO sorghums yet, okay? What I mean by that is we want to harvest stuff in this country with combines, and so does everybody else doing, you know, modern agriculture. You don't want to be out there with a machete. So if you have a 12-foot plant, it's not ideal for that. The other side, you have a 12-foot plant, a 10-foot plant, a 9-foot plant, an 8-foot plant. There's a lot of energy that goes into growing that plant that could be growing into producing grain. So I think most of the, the sorghums that they refer to as grain sorghums today are simply designed from an agricultural perspective to be ideal for the production of grain in an automated environment. And the reason I say that, again, is I can't find a sweet sorghum that says don't eat the grain. And again, the white African that I'm growing and the Mennonite are both marketed as dual. And I, I haven't found a sweet that isn't unless it's marketed to large-scale farmers. So I think that we're really playing semantics with this. Um, that's just my opinion. And I think most of you guys, if you grow sorghum, you're going to grow a larger variety 
you know, because you're not worried about trying to get your harvest in with your combine. You're worried about what can this plant do for me? And personally, I think a larger biomass can do more for you. All right. I hope that makes sense. See, Green Country uh, says, I hear sorghum biocolor is dual also. So sorghum bicolor is what most of the sorghums actually are that you grow. There's some like this is just not a plant that we're really that familiar with the United States. And it's why I'm doing today's episode, because this is a plant that has allowed a large portion of the world to survive in places where it's not guaranteed that you're going to. Like I said, in Africa, this is every subsistence grower and farmer is growing this plant. And I've seen varieties there that I can't even find here in the United States. I mean, I've seen some. The grain head is like the size of a freaking watermelon on it. The stalks are like as big around as your wrist. I've never seen that in the United States. I've never seen it in a seed catalog. But there was a, a, a movie out years ago and is um, a fantastic movie to watch. And it's called The Man Who Stopped the Desert. And it's about uh, a guy named Yakuba Sakadoa who practice a method of farming called Zai farming, where they basically just dig holes and they put organic matter, manure, et cetera, in every hole. And then you plant, in, not in the hole, you plant in, but so you have a hole a couple feet in diameter and you have, it looks like a, a cratered moon surface, except they're all in lines. And then you plant not in the hole, but in between the holes. And the, the, the sorghum in that movie, again, the, the freaking size of my wrist, freaking 12 foot tall and giant grain heads on it. And uh, so I'd like to get my hands on that. But this is this is the plant that these people stake their lives on. And everybody knows about it. Everybody grows it. It's a common thing. They make porridges and all types of stuff with it. And also they grow it for that biomass. All right. Um, what about for us? What makes it perfect for preppers? As a food source, like I said, grain is survival food. Right. So if I have a choice between not eating or eating sorghum pancakes, I'm eating the sorghum pancakes. It's gluten free. So that's great for a lot of people who do have sensitivity to gluten. And I know some of you out there, since I say gluten free, you roll your eyes and say, oh, good Lord. That's the latest thing that people that hippie, not hippies, that hipsters and uh, yuppies want to claim that they have that makes them special. They're gluten intolerant. Everything. And I agree that it's overplayed, but gluten intolerance is a thing. It absolutely is. And I'm not sure how much of it is innate and how much of it is due to gluten sensitivity because there's so much of it all the time anymore. You know, I talked about this last week, but when I was a kid, there might have been one kid in the school allergic to peanuts. Today, it's like every third kid has a peanut allergy. And I think there's definitely something that's caused greater food sensitivities in the stuff that we're growing. So eliminating gluten for a lot of people that maybe would not be able to literally look at a grain as a survival option. Now you would be able to, and it is probably the best of the gluten-free options in that world. So it's a great gluten-free food food source. You can make breads, porridges, et cetera. The other thing about it though, is if you have a survival food, you don't want to have to do a lot to make it ready to eat. And basically, you can cook it like you would cook like a, a couscous or a rice pilaf or something like that. You can make it in a rice cooker. You can make it in an Instapot. And you don't have to do anything. You literally can put the grains in there, maybe add some broth and some herbs for flavor, some salt, 
cook it till it's it's soft to eat and just eat it. And, and to me, that's incredibly valuable. It's less work than, let's say, using and making dry beans, which require a little more effort than that. Um, as a livestock feed, I think it's exceptional. It's the main reason that I want to grow it uh, as far as the outputs being livestock feed. And what I love about it for that purpose, again, it forms these seed heads and you can look up what to look for. But it's basically there's a point where it's 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 ripe. OK, you cut the seed heads off and, and put them to dry. If you were going to use it for yourself, then you're going to have to separate it off of the heads. You're going to have to winnow out the shaft, etc. And then you have mostly clean grain that you can put away to do something with. There's nothing wrong with that. But your birds do not require this. When I was growing it in the swell berms, there, we had a goose back then named Buddy the Goose. And Buddy was a girl. We named her Buddy because she, we, we ended up with her. And she wasn't with the other geese. She ended up with the ducks. She had no mommy. She was left behind. So we named her Buddy, like Buddy from the, the Christmas movie, right? Buddy the Elf that got left at Santa's workshop or Santa ended up in Santa's bag or whatever. So we named her that. And she hung out with the geese, I mean the ducks. And she was the one with enough beak power that when the sorghum plant was grown really tall, she could bite it and she would bite it and bite it and bite it until it would fall over. And then everybody would run in and eat the grain off. And I'm like, well, it's for you anyway. But then I'm like, wait a minute. If that's the case, then why would I do anything to process this for my livestock? And so all I did that year was I would just take it and I'd throw it up on the, 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 the roof of my, my back shop to dry. Just throw a ladder up there and went through the bag, just threw it out and then yanked it back down and, uh, put it in burlap and hung it up in the barn. And whenever I wanted to feed it, I'd just go in there and grab a couple handfuls and throw it to them. And they ate it like crazy. Now, if you guys are familiar with a prepper by the name of self-sufficient me on YouTube, a great content creator, he grew it one year and he said his birds didn't really care for it. I don't know if that had to do with the variety or whatever it is he was feeding his animals, but my birds killed themselves for it. And, and the chickens like it, but the ducks freaking love it. And I think part of the reason that it is it, it is the case for me is the feed that I, I buy in is based on sorghum and peanut because that way I can get the uh, protein value that I want and I have a feed that has no corn, no soy, and no GMO. And that's why we use the particular feed mix that we use. But that's its primary base is sorghum. And peanut, and maybe because of that, my birds are just tuned in on sorghum being a good thing. But I'll tell you the thing about that. When people say, well, my birds won't eat this, my birds won't eat that, assuming it's something that birds eat, yeah, they will. Yeah, they will. When you when you go to a Billy Bond or Jeff Lawton model where you're feeding them all food scraps and no grain, they're not exactly pleased about it at first, but they adapt. There is no problem when it comes to picky eating that hunger won't solve, right? That That's that's the way I, I'll put it to you, because that's the same philosophy I have with my grandkids. My, my granddaughter didn't want to eat something for breakfast today that she always eats for some, some made-up reason, and I'd, my wife was arguing. I'm like, why are you arguing with her? She's a kid. Tell her that's your food, and you don't get anything else until you eat it, and set it up on the counter, and when she's hungry later, tell her there it is. And so if I'm going to do that with a kid, I'll definitely do it with a duck or a goose, but 
It is a fantastic livestock feed, and it's not high enough in protein to be a standalone, but it's I think it's something like 14% on average. And probably the higher quality that you make your land you're growing it, it probably will increase across time. But if you're free-ranging your birds, they're getting plenty of protein. If you're doing black soldier fly, et cetera, if you're doing, like we talk about, azola and duckweed, you don't have really any concerns about that. And there's plenty of places in the world where the primary feed a chicken gets is sorghum. And they don't get fed much else, and it's up to them to go find what they need. And, again, we're talking about a grain coexisting with people that has enabled people to survive in very difficult environments and poultry along with it. So there's a long history, a long track record of that there. Um, next is if you do process it, or even you process it for your animals and leave it on the seed head, it stores so easily. Is a prepper, you have to think about being ready if times get tough. But you also have to think about what you're going to do after times get tough, depending on how long they stay that way. So if we're talking a couple-week event, it doesn't really matter that much, does it? If we end up in a whole new world, and sad to say we might the way things are going, then you need the things that you do for your subsistence, for your daily living, to not require a bunch of extra steps. So the beauty about all grains is if they're dry and they're kept dry, as long as they don't get really, really hot, they're going to be good for a long, long time, probably longer than a lot of your critters live, right? So that's just – Green Country says you can cut the stalk of Milo, turn it upside down, and hang it like that all winter. Indeed, yeah, you can just cut the plant and hang it. That's what I ended up doing the second year I grew it here instead of throwing up on the roof. That was a bit of overkill. I ended up cutting all of the heads off, and then I would just take a piece of uh, hemp twine and bundle them, and I hung them all in my barn like that. But I didn't hang the whole cane like he's saying because uh, they use that for something else. I just took off about, you know, maybe six inches of cane and had all bundles in there. And I would just take a bundle down and throw it to the birds with the keep the hemp cord so they don't get tied up in it because they're idiots and they will. It's, it's just so easy to do. Of course, the sap is a sugar source. Now, this is important for a variety of reasons. I might not eat a lot of sugar, but I know in a shit hit the fan scenario, having a source of sugar is a valuable thing that it would be a, a highly sought after commodity uh, in of itself. And then a lot, of, again, like I said, just because I don't eat a lot of sugar doesn't mean you don't. And uh, so having a sugar source on the homestead that you can rely on to produce sugar, you know, there's some steps involved in cooking it down. And actually, the hardest part is getting the dadgone syrup out of the stalks. There's different presses and things for that. But I've seen people simply chop it up into pieces and then boil everything. And then after it boils for a while, take the, the stems out, peel them, throw them back in, and then strain them and boil down that. And I'm sure there's other ways that it could be done. But if you have a source of sugar, right, then you have a source of fermentable and if you have a fermentable you can make moonshine or fuel that you might spill into your mouth so not only is a sure source of sugar for sweetening and let's let's talk about what sugar was yeah sorghum lawnmower fuel absolutely renegade sorghum lawnmower fuel so not only i'm sorry if you go back to the early stages of America, sugar was an incredible 
valuable commodity that had to be brought in from outside the colonies. Remember, Florida wasn't part of the United States at that point. And I think they grow some sugar cane in like South Carolina up in that area today. I don't know if they were back then, but sugar was pretty expensive stuff. It was grown mostly in what we call the West Indies, right? The Caribbean. And so if, if a person, you know, lived out in the sticks, was, you know, part of the westward expansion or whatever, and they wanted a sugar source, they didn't have a lot of options. They really didn't. Um, you can make sugar out of beets, but it's a pretty involved process. They pretty much had three options, honey, sorghum, and dates. Not dates. I'm sorry, figs. I don't know why I said dates. Figs. So if you go and you look at recipes of the time, you'll see a lot of them call for like a handful of dried chopped figs. And the reason they did it, a dried fig is almost pure sugar. So sugar has this value to humanity. We, 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 I think we become addicted to it and we have problems, but there's a commodity value to that. And so having that available and then the ability to make alcohol, that's always a, a, a great thing in my opinion. And the thing about sorghum is it can be, you can make alcohol from the, the sap, the juice, or you can make uh, and Big Hill says, what about maple syrup? If you lived in the right climate, because if you get down to like Virginia, the sap won't flow. So maple syrup is pretty much a northern climate thing, right? It's not something you can pretty much do anywhere. Um, anyway, uh, you can make a rum-like spirit. It's not rum, but a rum-like spirit using the uh, the sap. But you can also mash the grain and make something that would most accurately be called whiskey. Now, a lot of people will get pissed if you call it whiskey, right? But if you look at the definition legally of whiskey, if you were making it with the grain, that's what it would be. In China, where sorghum is consumed at a much higher rate than it is in the United States, they make a, a thing that they refer to, the, the Chinese translation of it would be sorghum wine. It's not wine, <laughs> It's it's freaking sorghum vodka is basically what it is. And I can't remember the brand name of this stuff, but uh, I watched this uh, old lady make some on, on YouTube. It was pretty cool. And when I saw it going into I'm like, sorghum wine? I want to know what this is because that would be like flat beer, wouldn't it? And so I'm watching this thing, and then I just start seeing her fit together this, like, antique cobbled together still, you know. And I'm like, oh, okay, Grandma's making moonshine. But now you have a source of ethyl alcohol. Now, why do we have a federal organization called the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms? How did we end up with an organization responsible to oversee those three things? What does, what does alcohol have to do with tobacco? But, okay, at least they're both like agricultural type crops that people consume. Right. Firearms. How does firearms link to alcohol? How does firearms link to tobacco? And we can start pounding on the state. You guys know I don't obviously with the shirt I'm wearing today. Right. I don't have any problems with that. But why? Why? The why is because they're the three biggest barter items in a black market. If you go to somewhere in the world where everything's gone to shit, 
if you have bullets and guns or you have booze or you have cigarettes, you have you have currency. That's how that entity became what it is, because that's the currency of the black market. So obviously, then you would want to have access to things like that if society completely went to crap. And I'll just leave it to you from there. Um, and it's just cool to be able to make things. Just going to say it that way. Uh, the biomass is massive. That's something else that, you know, I already kind of talked about that, but I, I really want to drive home how much that is true, even if you're just growing it for feed for your chickens or whatever. You're not growing the sedan grass or whatever. It is a lot of biomass. And it's two places. It's above ground and it's below ground. The reason I decided initially to grow it this year is I have some beds that I'm going to grow it in that need a lot of help. They're not ready for prime time yet. And I was going to grow some sort of suppressive cover crop in them and improve them over this season. And I thought about why don't use like a giant grass as a, as a cover crop. And I'm doing it as much for the fact if you've ever actually dug up one plant, the root mass these things have is massive. So for a soil improvement, you have a plant that you can cut and mulch, cut it, you know, throw it through a chipper shirt if you want to, mulch it, or you can compost it, or you can make silage out of it. No matter what you do, if you leave that root mass in the ground, and I don't know why you wouldn't, you've put a ton of organic matter into the soil. And that's also going to help reduce erosion in your off season. And then if you were to come in and cover crop it with a winter cover crop, which I will, like something like like winter pea over and, and turnip over the winter and then and maybe daikon. And then you have a totally different root structure decaying in the spring. You can turn land around really fast that way. And it's it, it's something like, again, if you're a prepper. How do you ignore a plant that you can make alcohol out of food, out of livestock food, out of compost, out of, right? Do soil improvement with. It stands up to, you know, drought. It grows in marginal soils that won't grow other things. It almost seems kind of foolish to ignore, doesn't it? Um, and then because it is, you know, it is a seed crop. That is the primary output in the end is a grain. That grain is seed. Once you start growing it and you find the variety or group of varieties that you want to grow, you're seed independent forever. You're seed independent forever. A couple handfuls of this stuff will grow more of it than you can probably use. So you can just save back a small portion every year and you don't have to rely on a seed house anymore. And I think that's a place that all of us should try to get to with as many things as possible. I don't have any problem with people that buy seed every year. I, I know I probably buy more than I should, honestly. Um, there's certain things that I don't take as much effort into producing seed with that are like biannuals, like chard or beets. Um, for now, anyway, it's just easier to buy it. But I think that we all should have some things that we don't buy seed for. And a grain crop would definitely be one of them. I think beans are another one. Uh, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, those are all things that we can easily get to a point where we're providing our own seed, squash, etc. And so even if you're buying some stuff in, um, the fact that you have a base that you don't have to rely on a supply chain for is pretty big. Uh, next, um, they have a, it has a very high level of pest resistance. It's not nothing attacks it. Nothing really attacks it from what I've seen enough to stop it. I don't care if a bug or two eats a little bit on my plant as long as I get what I want out of it. 
So I'm not going to say there's no pests that attack sorghum, because I'm sure there are. What I'm going to say is, if you ain't growing 40,000 acres in a blocked field of it, you're probably not going to care about the little bit of pest activity that you get. Again, this is a crop that's been grown in really harsh environments for almost 10,000 years by humans. It's been selected for, and that's I think that's something that I don't have in my notes, but as I think about it right now, it's probably a big part of why it's so resistant to pest disease, drought, et cetera. I always say when you're saving seed that you save or selecting plant varieties or whatever, always select first for survival. You know, taste, flavor, early ripening, late bloom, whatever it is, we'll get to that. Let's find the one that doesn't die first, and then we'll work on that, and we'll select for the traits we want after survival. Well, if you're living off what you grow, I mean, literally, this is if you do not grow this food this year, you will die, and so will your family. You're going to naturally select for survival, and I think because this plant still has so many varieties out there that are available that are old varieties. Yeah, there's all these ones. Again, they're not genetically modified, but they've been selectively bred for, you know, 100 years to make these low-growing, faster-growing, grain-dedicated ones that grow three to five foot tall. Sure, that's there. But there is no shortage of, you know, hundreds of varieties of this stuff. And I'm sure that if somebody were to, to make an effort, you could probably end up with a pretty cool importation business of sorghum seeds because I think just one simple trip through a few places in Africa would find stuff that nobody in this country has ever heard of before. And because of that, we have access to the survival selective traits of this plant. So I think it's really worth growing. Um, silage can also be a great feed source. So those of you guys that are looking at more animals that would use silage, I don't have them. Um, you can be growing this crop for silage. And to me, that makes a lot of sense as well um, as something you'd want to know about. Now, again, I said, and I'm going to talk about this some more in just a second. There is some concern with grazing animals and frost with cyanide. So make sure you're doing it right. But if you put silage by, then you're in a great position. And that's something that used to be very common in America. It used to be very common in Europe. And it just isn't anymore. And it was right around World War II when a lot of this stuff changed. Because everything became chem-ag, and we took all of the weapons and machinery of war, and we set them on the, on the fields uh, of agriculture. Uh, it's also, like I mentioned earlier, it's cut and come again. And I, I don't think this works for everybody. I think if you're in Pennsylvania, you can forget about this. But if you're planted about right now, there's no reason you can't get two crops. And I'm like, am I the only one that thought of this? And I was doing some research for this episode, and I found a, a video of some, some folks in Africa, and they were growing it, and the gentleman was explaining how they're going to cut it. And sometimes when they cut it, and it was an early crop for them especially, that they'll get more on the second harvest per plant than on the first. They get smaller heads, but they're more likely to get multiple heads. And so they said the, the particular variety they were growing, they would sometimes get five to seven heads on that grow back, which I think is, I, I, I haven't seen that myself. I've seen two or three, though, and it's pretty damn impressive. Um, last, again, no GMO. That's one beautiful thing about it. So you might say, well, you know, Jack, I can grow a non-GMO corn. The problem with corn 
is the genetics from GMO end up in it one way or another. There was a study done almost 15 years ago because it's back right around the time I started the show where they went like geneticists went out to like these remote cornfields that had never grown any, you know, GMO corn. And there wasn't any GMO corn within miles of this stand of corn. And they tested the genes of the corn and found various genetic modified traits in the corn because it's wind pollinated. It it can go for miles and miles and miles. Now, this is not a reason to never touch corn again. It just is a thing. And it's all that it's going to become is more and more true. So if you have a grain that does all this other stuff and there's no potential for it to be uh, cross pollinated with a GMO grain, then I think you're in really good shape. From that standpoint, if that's important, and that's important to me. Now, I will say this to mitigate that a little bit here at the end. I have always said I am less concerned about genetic modified plants than what they're genetically modifying to do. And there's two types of genetic modification that are made in plants. And, and when I say GMO, I mean actually genetic modified. There's a third thing that's done with all kinds of plants, and mankind's been doing it for 10,000 years, and it's selective breeding. And the GMO advocates will say, we've been genetically modifying shit since 10,500 B.C. or whatever. No, we haven't. That's a lie. That's not genetic modification. That's genetic selection, meaning that every cross that happens, it's part of that, happened naturally. We didn't do it. Plants did it. They naturally reproduced with each other, and they made new varieties. And almost everything we eat went through that process to become refined to a point where what was palatable to us, we liked it. So, like, even like we said, like heirloom tomatoes or whatever, it was a hybrid at one time, which is proven out. So that's not what I'm talking about. Now, GMO. There's GMOs that occur that could occur in nature, but we speed them up in a laboratory. Don't like it, but at least it could happen. Like, we're not making a puppy kid. Right. We're not making a puppy kitten. This is so it's basically genetic selection using genetic modification so that we can predict which ones to select from. Okay, then there is the completely wholly unnatural form of GMO where we take gene information from a species that cannot in any way ever hope to cross with another. An example would be cotton. There is a genetically modified cotton that the gene that they they spliced into it comes from a fish. Now, fish in a cotton plant are not going to be, you know, copulating, right? That That is a wholly unnatural thing, and I don't like that either. But what I'm more concerned about is when we take these plants and we genetically modify them to handle being sprayed with an herbicide, and we spray that herbicide directly onto that plant. It takes it up into it, and people are eating this and feeding it to their children. So understand that if we were only genetically modifying, so this plant would grow in marginal soil or would grow longer roots or something, I would still not really think it's a great idea, but I wouldn't be as anti-GMO as I am. It's all about stuff. The thing to understand is this is all about creating patentable seeds and selling chemicals to go with them, and I don't think that's in mankind's interest. So soapbox moment over. So I want to talk a little bit about toxicity concern. And I want to show you guys something. I'm going to bring it up on screen for those that are here. This is an actual scientific study. It is, as far as I can tell, the source 
of all of the, 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 the fear that's out there among the seed sprouting community and things like that. And I'm going to read directly from it so I get it right. The seeds of four cultivars of grain sorghum and four of sweet sorghum, sorghum bicolor uh, contained only traces, one or two parts per million to 29 parts per million of total hydrocyanic acid, HCN, that could be generated as free HCN by digestion and steam distillation. Sprouts of the same cultivars grown for three days in the dark at 30 degrees C, however, contain between 258 and 1,030 parts per million potential HCN relative to the weight of the ungerminated dry seed. Drying at 50 C and grinding the sprouts to produce meal did not reduce the potential HCN content. The consumption of sorghum sprouts or products made from them may be hazardous. The average amount of 61.3 micrograms of HCN obtained in our laboratory from sprouts, sprouts grown from 100 grams of seeds exceeds the average fatal dose for an adult. That 100 grams is like three and a half ounces. It's not a, a ton that would exceed a fatal dose, not just an injurious dose, but a fatal dose in a human. Now, my issue with this and all of the hysteria about it, and I'm not saying not to be concerned at all because the truth is I don't know. You can go on Amazon right now and buy sprouted sorghum. If there was a company with a main brand label on it that was selling a product with cyanide in it that was any serious risk to human health, and certainly if it had killed people, there'd be a line of ambulance chasing lawyers looking for a class action suit, and I can't find it. I can't find a single report of somebody that got some sorghum, sprouted it, ate it, and died. I'm not saying it's not possible because clearly the scientific research would indicate that it's possible. There's a key thing in this that makes me wonder if it's part of the issue, but don't pretend Jack said it's okay if, okay? It says three days in the dark. Interesting. So I'm wondering when sorghum is sprouted for nutritional purposes or for food purposes, if it's like laid out in a flat surface and done under light. And the answer to that, I don't know. But yeah, Hippocrates is on it, right? Sprouted in lack of light. I think that might be what caused that research to have this result. This is something I don't know 100% yet. But again, I know that right now I can I can go on Google, type sprouted sorghum in, and go buy it from big brand companies. And again, if it was killing people, I think we would know about it. And that research indicated what? That drying it and milling it or whatever did not change the outcome at all. It was still there. So that's one form of concern, and I think it's fairly mitigated. There's another form of concern, and I think this is much more likely to be a problem for people that are using it for uh, grazing or for silage, because it's a little more you got to pay attention to what's going on. As it begins to be hit with frost, but not yet dead, and it starts to wilt, apparently it can produce a large amount of cyanide uh, when it's used for grazing animals. And that can be a risk to cattle, et cetera. So that's something that I, I, I will not advise you on one way or another because I don't know exactly what practices you need to stick with to make sure. It may be as much as 
you got to get it harvested it into silage or go ahead and fed before you have any weather, you know, lower than this temperature. It might be the way it looks. I don't know. But that's something I would highly recommend if you're going to do it. You uh, you, you you make sure you're doing it under best best practices and you get in touch with someone that's expert in that, because I don't want anybody emailing me and going, my horse, my cow, my goat, my sheep, whatever are dead because of you, because I don't know. And with the sprouts, too, you know, make sure you're sure about what you're doing, because I don't want anybody emailing me telling me they're, they're dead. I guess they wouldn't, but their spouses, their kid, et cetera, because some I recommend it. So I wanted to make sure I, I finished with that. But I, I think overall, um, there's Joe says something. Let's see what the collective intelligence says. My feed store guy said wait 30 days after a frost to graze BRM sorghum. So maybe it's for a time then. So again, I'm not really sure on that, but that's, I, I do think on the sprouts, the lack of light thing has something to do with what's going on there. The time, so it's a three day duration and then the lack of light. Usually when I've seen grain sprouted and not sprouted into a microgreen, but sprouted into a sprout, all you're looking for is a little rootlet sticking out. And that's done, you know, in the malting process with barley to, to bring more sugar so that you, when you mash it to make fuel, you get more act- extract from it, right? So that's not my world. I don't know a lot about that. Uh, Hunter says sorghum in the notebook next to almonds and apple seeds. Got it. Yeah, it could potentially be a problem, but it's probably not something you need to run around worry about. But I do. I think that like when you look at our future and I want to kind of finish with a little bit, talk about why I'm starting to do some of these episodes, biochar, azole and biochar put together. Sorghum is a prepper grain. I've always taught permaculture principles, homesteading, growing your own food, et cetera. But I'm going to be uh, vermicomposting. I've been doing a lot on that lately. I'm going to probably start doing black soldier flies. I feel like it's time for all of us to start doing all the things. I have always tried to be like the most optimistic, inspiring person in the prepper space since I started. I started this show you know, in 2008 saying the cities could burn, but you got to live your best life. You got to design your best life. And we can't sit around worrying about what's going wrong. We have to be doing lifestyle design with preparedness as part of it, non-brutal lifestyle design. The past couple of years have shown me that maybe I'm too much of an optimist about the future of the world as a whole in our time. I think anything that happens bad to humanity short of ending the species is temporary. But I don't think that matters to the people that suffer through it, the people that are in the fourth turning. On top of it, all the things that are just naturally going wrong with kind of the end of an age of empire. The people in charge seem hell-bent on complete and total destruction of our way of life. And I'm not talking about coming out after us individually, like saying targeting prep. I don't mean it that way. What I'm talking about is the overall reality that made Western culture the most successful thing on the planet The people in charge of the countries that are Western countries right now seem like they want to destroy their own countries. Every policy seems detrimental to the people that it's supposed to serve and or protect. 
And I defy you to give me one recently that, that looks good for us. I don't know in what way provoking a war with Russia over Ukraine, which 10 years ago, most of you, the people like losing their shit about it couldn't have found on a map. And listening to people that are leftist shriek about Russia being communist is just my brain hurts. The stuff that they're doing, and I know it doesn't seem like there's a direct relationship to homesteading. We start talking about like the LGBTQ plus blah, 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 blah shit. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care if you're gay married. I was a, I'm an ordained minister. I offered to marry gay couples if they wanted to get married before any of the shit passed and made it where they could just go anywhere and do it. Just as a show of support that I think it's two people have every right to be married if they want to be married. I don't care who they are. But you shouldn't be talking to kids about this stuff. And the fact that about half the people in this country now think that it's morally acceptable to have a man pretending to be a woman teach kindergarten and talk to children about their genitals. We live in a sick society. And the problem with sick societies is even if you move away from them and God knows I've told you, get out, get out, get out. Sick societies go into decay. And they don't just go into moral decay. They go into a decay of infrastructure. Does that sound familiar? Anybody seen like trains blowing up and shit recently? Factories burning down, roads falling apart, bridges collapsing, right? They go into a decay of everything. They go into a decay of value. I, I don't want to dig too deep into this today because I'll probably talk about it tomorrow, but the BRICS nations have now officially crossed the G7 in GDP, meaning Brazil, Russia, India, and China now collectively have a larger economy than the G7, which is the United States, EU, etc. That should be CNN, MSDNC, Fox News. Like That should be a mainstream story that this thing that some redneck hippie duck farmer told you was going to happen all those years ago, back in 08 when he started, that everybody said could never happen. China's on its last legs. There's no Brazil's a clusterfuck, whatever. It was a population thing was definitely going to happen in time. There's a much larger population in those nations. And then we went and pushed. I mean, it's one thing to side with Ukraine in the conflict. It's another thing to like kick Russia off swift and I'll just shove them into China. And you, this is not about how bad that is. This is. Why would you do that unless you were trying to destroy your own culture? And I, I hate that I'm talking about sorghum and I'm ending up here. But I do feel like we all need an impetus to do more. And in the last couple of years, I've really begun to kind of figure out the tools that we need to be truly independent and sustainable. And there's so much about it that's just, you know, it's good fortune and the law of attraction, I guess. But like having Nick Ferguson and all the work he's put into developing systems that are fodder-based. And you take fodder systems and then you end up with biochar and biochar systems build soil. And then we, we can take a kiddie pool and a cup of human urine and grow a high-protein, high-nitrogen fertilizer like Azola that we can backfeed into. You see what I'm saying? Like, everything we need is here. 
We have an endless supply of food waste in this country that they won't give you to feed to animals, but you can get it for composting. So you can lie and feed it to your animals. You can lie because you're feeding it to a bug and making compost with black soldier fly. Then we have a grub that we can feed to our birds. We can feed it to fish. So then we've got a protein source there. We're getting to the point now where solar is becoming more and more doable for more and more people economically. It's becoming more and more affordable. We have Bitcoin, which doesn't seem like for many people think it really relates to this. But if you have surplus energy and you're not getting Bitcoin out of it, what are you doing? You're just wasting energy. So the capturing of stranded energy. And, and I still think we need a community, an intentional community that looks more like a subdivision with large lots. But we need to like have assembly places where like all the waste goes and the waste goes based on what kind of waste it is and what kind of waste we need right now. So a lot of waste would go to, let's say, black soldier fly production in the summer that wouldn't go there in the winter. Vermicomposting, uh, prunings for uh, for biochar, et cetera. And I think. We can either start to build stuff like this now or we can start building it when we're totally screwed and we have to. And I would rather, rather have it happen before we need it. My wife and I were talking about this and I'm like, we, we need to build it back while it's burning down or wait till it's done burning. And if it's a building, you wait till it's done burning. But like if it's burning over here and this isn't the new build here. And so I'm, I'm trying to bring you as many subjects this year as I can that give you the tools that you need that maybe you don't use them all, but you're aware of them. And as you start working with other people and God knows we need to, you know, you might have a friend that has a half acre that he can grow anything on. A half acre of sorghum is a shit load of sorghum. It's probably more than one person at a homestead scale would ever use. Well, it could become an income source. It could become a feed source. I mean, there's so much and it would make the land more fertile if it was done right over time. You know, we talk about biochar, you know, those big sorghum stocks. That's biochar fuel if you want. There's so much that can be done with this. There's so much that we have ahead of us if we go into the future eyes open and accept that we are in a really shitty time in some ways. But we're also in an incredibly opportunistic time. We really are. And the, the days of our empire are coming to a close. And there's a lot of people that have a lot of anger about that, but it's not because of what they're going to have to go through. It's because they actually think that it's a good thing for us to be an empire. I think we're better off not being an empire. I think any country's better off not being an empire. Um, I think we certainly have all of the tools that we need to defend our country without being an empire. We don't have to tell the rest of the world how to live. So we don't have to be an empire so that we don't have to fight them over here. You can't run society on a bunch of catchphrases, not effectively or morally anyway. Anyway, let's answer a few of y'all's questions before we uh, close up. Jesse says, can sorghum be used to soak up excess standing water in Ohio? I don't know. I don't know if it'll suck up excess standing water. Uh, it might. I would tell you it's highly drought tolerant, so it probably doesn't like really, really wet soils. Um, DIY Honda said, what is a good method to source sorghum with no-till on a larger scale, like an acre or so? You would use a seed drill. 
of some kind, you don't have to plow to seed drill. That would be one way to do it. Um, you could plow if you had to. I'm okay plowing things the first time. Uh, often that is a way to go. Uh, there are also ways to basically cut furrows without completely plowing uh, an acre. So that is a lot. Um, there are tools for planting that if you, an acre would probably be a bit much to do this, but I have a planter. It looks like a piece of PVC pipe. It's about five foot long and it's got like, it looks like a little grabber, but it's a reverse thing. When you pull the thing, the grabber opens instead of closes and you stick it in the ground, you drop a seed down it, you squeeze the thing and it opens, you pull it out and the dirt just falls back around it. There's automated tools that do that same thing called seed drills. So that would probably be your best bet, depending on, you know, what's your budget and what's available, because I've never really looked into it. Uh, space, well, another thing you can do if you're growing crops consecutively is you grow a winter crop and then you go and you sow your seed and you don't bury it and you drop your cover crop as a mulch on top of it. And you'll get very good germination and, and, and growth out of, especially a plant like sorghum in that situation. Um, Space Girl says gluten intolerance is caused by the altered grains and the process it goes through before the consumer gets it. I find even grinding my own wheat is easier to digest or to make sourdough. Yeah, sourdough helps as well. I'll, I'll tell you this, too. I, I, I think there is something to the entire process that we produce, especially wheat with. So. One of the people that I learned to trust by calling bullshit on him so many times and always being wrong when I did. And when I researched it long enough, I found out the man was always right. And I gave up. And some of you know who I'm talking about, the old cute himself, Bill Mollison. And so I've, I've after, you know, 20 uh, wild goose chases trying to prove him wrong on something, I've just given up and just go, OK, he said it. It's true. And I listened to one of his lectures, and it's on my Odyssey channel. I have a whole series of his lectures. I don't remember which one it was. But he was talking about how how wheat was treated even just 100 years ago, you know, 1920 in the United States. First, it had to be tested for protein content. And I don't remember what the number was, but it's a lot higher than the average wheat that we're harvesting and using for human consumption today. And if you tested your wheat and it was below that protein, then it had to be used for animal food. It could not even be sold as human food. And there was a, law, a change in the law somewhere in around that time that changed that. The other thing was that wheat was not just harvested the way that we do today. It was cut and stacked in sheaths in the field. And you think of the old, you know, olden times pictures of all the wheat standing in these pyramid structures in the field. And I always thought they just did that to let it dry so that it could be processed further. Well, what Bill said is that when you do that, it actually begins the fermentation and it heats up. And it had to stay in the field that way for a given number of days and go through a fermentation process before it could be processed and then sold into human food. And all of that just went away. Now, I know that's true, at least as, as, as well as I'm remembering what it said, because, again, I gave up fighting bill on anything you know and jeff lawton said the same thing you just give up he just beat you over the head with facts you can't you can't stand it anymore you know um but i i i i don't know that that really matters much anymore i think there's enough problems in our food supply that, that that's probably not the biggest one the fact that they spray our food supply with toxins 
is, is probably a bigger one. Uh, Dan Weddle said, can you harvest a seed head and make silage with the stalks? Absolutely. And many people do. Uh, however, like the plants that are best for silage are the ones that are grown for silage, right? But you can make silage out of regular, uh, you know, more grown for human consumption as well. Now, I do think there might be something to do with how mature the stalks are, though. Maybe, again, I'm not an expert on this. So that'd be something you have to look into. Free words, free range birds eat Z bugs and are happy. Uh, yeah. Uh, for Renegade Butcher. Jason, Jack, what's your thoughts on curly dock instead of sorghum as they are similar? Not familiar with curly dock, so I'm not really sure. I've got a dog problem, guys. I hate to do it, but I'm going to go put this dog out before she traps in the house. I'll be right back and we'll finish up. All right. Sorry about that. That's just she wasn't going to give up. And if I didn't do it, she did something on the rug. It would have been my fault. Anyway, uh, Kumi says good for chickens. There are 632 calories in one cup serving size of sorghum grain. The calorie breakdown, 9% fat, 88% carbs, 13% protein. Uh, so thanks for that information. Yeah, it's, it's a great feed for poultry. It really is. And I have, again, I have found them to really key in on it. I haven't had to do anything to get my birds to eat it. And so I, I hope this is a good episode for you guys. I want to thank you guys for uh, tuning in today. Um, I, <laughs> Tom says, good dog, bad dog with crap on the floor. Yeah. And if I don't get up, she will. That's like, Hey, I mean it. I mean it now let's go. And uh, so that's why I got up and did it anyway. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you like it and you want to help support the show and the work that we do, uh, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is one I've brought around a lot of time over the years, the Lodge Carbon Steel Season Skillet. I brought it around today because i got a pricing alert for it. So the 12-inch skillet is on sale for 32% off. This is carbon steel, not cast iron. That means it weighs a lot less. It heats up faster. Unlike cast iron, it doesn't hold its heat as long once heated up. But if you, especially if you cook on gas, you really don't give a damn now, do you? Um, I have switched almost a hundred percent from cast iron to, uh, to, uh, stain, uh, to carbon steel in almost all of my cookware. There's a few things I still use cast for, but when you're talking about a sear on a steak or sauteing some vegetables, this is the way to go. The reason I brought it around today, though, again, with that 32% discount on the 12 inch, the 12-inch skillet is the workhorse of a kitchen. It is the do-anything, do-everything pan. It's about the biggest size that stays all over the burner. So, that you know, the 15-inch double-handed one, it's kind of like a carbon steel paella pan. That's on sale today, too. I own that pan. I love it. But that's more of like out-on-the-grill type cooking for me because there's so much of that 15-inch that's away from the flame, which can be good if you want zones and all, but making use of a pan it's small enough you can still toss your vegetables and stuff in it and on sale at 32 percent off i basically i have two of these that they say immaculate they get better every time they get used and i think a kitchen without two good skillets in it is lacking so it's a tool remember you can always find everything i recommend at tspaz.com t-s-p-a-z tspaz.com all my product reviews there and you help us out no matter what you buy uh, as long as you start your shopping there. The other way, join the MSB. And, guys, I just told you we soft launches today, official launch tomorrow, Mile High Distilling. Some of those set up 600000 bucks. 
if that's something you want to get into, 10% off, your membership's covered, and that's just one. And I keep working to add some stuff. I got another one coming for you this week uh, as well, and that'll get officially launched on Thursday is what we have planned for uh, a smaller company, and I think it's good to continue to, to build the MSB with both small companies, people right out of our community, and larger uh, companies, you know, Dr. Earth Fertilizers is an MSB sponsor. That's a that's a national brand that we're fortunate to have in our program. So I'll keep building it for you if you keep supporting me. That way I can keep doing what I do and supporting you. And, of course, you can always uh, support the show with value for value exchange using podcasting 2.0 apps like Fountain FM. If you use the Aldi wallet, you can support us right here instead of using the Super Chat function and giving YouTube uh, you know, 10% of what you give me, uh, you can you can send it with Aldi and just send it right to me. And you can follow me on Noster, N-O-S-T-R. I'm going to do another show on this soon. Uh, I had an expert come on to talk about it, and uh, I'm going to talk about it as the you know, user experience after a few weeks uh, of using it. I'll probably wait another couple of weeks, but I really love using the Nostra protocol to communicate with people over what we think of as social media, because it's the protocol. It is not a platform. So people are like, well, I can't, how do I find you on Nostra? Well, you, you need a client like Iris or snort or something like that. And you need a pub key and then you need to look me up. Um, it sounds complicated till you do it. I, I figured it out in 20 minutes and then I figured out the little things that weren't working quite right in another 20 minutes. So about an hour to up and go. And last week I was off Twitter for a week because I got a ban because I said somebody needed to be punched in the mouth. He was being a jackass. Uh, and I think it was all through automation because it was like a second after I did it. And it, it really didn't make any sense. I've seen plenty of things that weren't even that were way worse than that. Not get people knocked off, but it did. And I spent a week not using Twitter and only using Noster. And I said today on my Twitter and it's pinned to my profile. Now I'm pretty much going to be using Twitter this way in the future. I'll run my polls on there for the polls that we do that we read on air. Cause it works really good for that. Uh, I'll put out, you know, new shows, announcements, all that stuff. I'll use Twitter like a brand uses Twitter. I'm not going to spend a lot of time having conversations with it anymore. Uh, Twitter's a shit show. It's not just the, the, the censorship. It's a shit show. It really is. It's, it's people hurling political bullshit at each other all day long. Uh, you get a politician, right or left, I don't care, and they say anything, and 99% of the people responding to them are hating on them for something that has nothing to do with their post. You know, so-and-so announces new jobs program. Well, what are you going to do about the electric grid, man? How's Like, that level of mentality, I'm just kind of done. I'm not mad done. I'm not leaving it like a left Facebook. I'm just not going to put as much effort there because you know what happens on Noster? I put up really nice content and then people actually throw me some Satoshis and I throw Satoshis back and forth and I end up making money on Noster. So, you know, I kind of talked at the end of the day about how we're, we're heading into this down cycle of humanity. Don't think that all the solutions are in like permaculture and growing your own food. That's a big, important piece of it. But we have to have the ability to communicate with each other. We're going to need a marketplace and it needs to be a non-centralized marketplace that they just can't shut down. We need ways to communicate. And 
what I'm seeing there, we're going to have all types of clients that use Noster to allow for the exchange of information, goods, and services. And it's going to be one of those things that you want to know about and you want to learn about before you need it, just like growing your own food. So that's where I want to finish today. Guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Come on over to Noster. Follow me there. If you're not ready for it yet, get on Telegram. Get on Telegram. We have some great discussions there in the group. If you get on the channel, you just get my announcements, and that way you won't miss live feeds like this. With that, take care. I will catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. Yeah.